Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, top Facebook officials have known for years that the social platform can have harmful impacts on users, but they've failed to do much about them. That's according to a new Wall Street Journal series that reviewed internal documents suggesting the company disregarded reports from employees that it damages teens' mental health or speeds up the spread of misinformation. Now Facebook is pushing back, saying the journal investigation deliberately mischaracterized the company's actions. We'll talk to the reporters behind the series and take your questions after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Nearly a third of teen girls say Instagram, Facebook's photo and image sharing app, makes them feel worse about their bodies. And among teens who've had suicidal thoughts, 13% of British users and 6% of U.S. users trace this to Instagram. These are issues Facebook has known about because the data come from the company's own research. But according to a Wall Street Journal investigation, time and again, Facebook's leaders have done little to address these and other harms brought to their attention by their own employees. Joining me now are Wall Street Journal tech reporters Jeff Horowitz. Hi, Jeff Horowitz. Thanks so much for joining us. Certainly. Also, Georgia Wells is with us, tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Hi, Georgia Wells. Hi. And Deepa Sitharaman, tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal as well, part of this investigation, the Facebook files. Deepa, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, Jeff Horwitz, I want to start with you. The Instagram findings I just mentioned came from a trove of internal Facebook documents that you were able to obtain. What can you tell us about how you were able to get your hands on these? Uh, not a ton on that <laughs> front. I guess what I can what I can say is that um, there's been a lot of efforts at um, you know, part of my job is trying to get to know people who work at the company and who um, understand its issues. Uh, and I am, um, you know, this is like a pretty regular thing. I think it's it's pretty unusual that um, I'm able to speak with people who are as well informed and as um, thoroughly documented um, as, you know, was the case here. Um, but uh you know, I, I think is work that I would say is made available to me because the company 
isn't viewed by its own employees as having taken these issues seriously enough, right? There aren't large leaks out of the ad sales division. Um, this is stuff that you get from people who have been asked to tackle really societally important problems, but don't feel like they've been given the leeway to execute on the solutions. And I think that creates a lot of frustration and, and in some degree anguish um, among people who feel responsible for these things, but can't do things about them. Hmm. And that's the sort of thing that ends up with people talking to folks like me. And at least some of these documents, as the Wall Street Journal has noted, have been turned over to the Securities and Exchange Commission and to Congress by a person seeking federal whistleblower protection. Yeah, that's, um, you know, not not my business. Uh, it is a obviously you know, you can talk with reporters and you can talk with government and ideally those things don't overlap too much. Um, but there certainly does seem to be interest in, in getting this information to relevant people. Well, digging into the documents that revealed the scope of harms of Instagram, Georgia Wells, they revealed that Facebook has been conducting some pretty extensive research for years into Instagram's impact on teens. Can you talk a little bit about the scope of this this research that they've done for some time? So for the past three years, Facebook has been conducting studies into how Instagram affects users. And repeatedly, Instagram researchers found that Instagram is harmful for a sizable percentage of them, most notably teen girls. Often the mechanism of what we're talking about here is this thing called negative social comparison. And that's this dynamic where someone will be scrolling Instagram, but it could happen on other apps or, you know, the media or magazines. And rather than looking at content from the perspective of who is this person? What am I learning? It's this mindset of how do I stack up next to them? So that's where a lot of this harm is coming from that they're talking about. And you're saying this is something that Instagram is specifically good, for lack of a better word, at doing in terms of helping people compare themselves to others, that this is something worse than, say, other social media apps, because there are a lot of image sharing apps out there, right? Yeah, exactly. That uh, Yeah, exactly. That Instagram is quite effective at eliciting these feelings of negative social comparison. And so... The reasons for that have to do with a lot of the mechanics about the app. There's this highlight reel kind of a culture that's fostered. There's filters that often um, kind of are intended to beautify the images that the people are uploading. There's, you know, ways that people can signal that they like something and tally up the likes. But the reason this is important is, or the reason it's notable that Instagram is quite effective at this is that in the past when we've talked to Instagram leaders about and executives about kind of mental health issues they often frame it as well this is a social media problem rather than this is an Instagram problem and what comes out of the documents is this notion that Instagram is worse for negative social comparison than other apps because for example on TikTok a lot of the content is divorced from reality because it's so performative. And on Snapchat, a lot of the content focuses on the face with these silly filters that aren't quite as beautifying typically. But on Instagram, the focus is on the body and the focus is on the lifestyle. And again, this finding that's very specific to Instagram comes from 
Instagram employees, Facebook employees that work in computer science, psychology, data analysis, and so forth. And the findings are really stark. I, I gave some of the stats um, in the introduction about a third of teen girls and also 14% of teen boys saying that they feel worse about themselves after being on the app. So then Deepa Sitharaman, what did Facebook do with these findings, which I imagine would be vital to people studying and concerned about the link between social media and, and mental health issues or eating disorders? Did they share it? Deepa, are you there? Well, let me go to Georgia Wells on that. Georgia, did they share it? Do they share this information with others? Because there are a lot of people working in this space and interested in these questions. Deepa, if you, um, you know, want to chime in, if you unmute, go for it, um, but I'll go for it. So, um, so Facebook researchers, they proposed all these different tools or different ways to address some of these issues. So they suggested better time spent tools. They suggested doing more. What are time, better time spent tools, like taking a break or things like that? Yeah, I, they don't spell out exactly what they mean, but you could take that to mean some form of a you know, push notifications or something, or kind of a tool to set how much time you want to spend on the app. They suggest doing filters that are sillier rather than quite as beautifying. They suggest surfacing less uh, fashion content and less beauty content, because that's some of the content in particular that, like, although it's hard to predict which content can trigger someone, some that content is um, kind of correlated with more negative social comparison. And they also kind of bring up ideas around how to, or ideas about how to address some of the addictive product mechanics, because they describe some of the language the teens use as almost an addict's narrative about their usage of the app, that some of the teens recognize that spending time on Instagram makes them feel bad about themselves, but they don't know how to stop or how to spend less time on it. And actually... Facebook made two researchers available for us after we'd come to them with this recording and that they said that they're working on some of these issues now. So specifically, they're working on ways to nudge. They, they describe it as a nudge, but I think it could likely be a pop-up. They didn't say exactly what it would look like, but some form of notification to tell a user like, hey, you're looking at, why don't you come back to some healthier content? And they're also considering a way to nudge users about like, hey, here's a reminder, maybe you want to take a break from the app. So now, you know, a couple of years later, we're starting to see potentially some work on some of these issues. We don't know if or when they'll roll them out. And Deepa Sitharaman, I understand that members of Congress have asked Facebook officials for their internal research on the impact of its platforms on youth mental health. What have they said? Um, well, this has been an issue prior to our story throughout the year. Um, Facebook earlier this year confirmed that they were going to put out an Instagram for kids. And that sparked a lot of conversation about, well, how, you know, tell us about the effects on teens. Tell us about how your product actually affects young people. And what Facebook has said publicly, um, Mark Zuckerberg has said that the research he's seen indicates that that social media has a lot of positive uses and another instagram executive has told both reporters uh, has told reporters and, and said publicly that um the effects of instagram on teens mental health is is small and 
I, you know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a pretty sharp contrast to what the researchers are saying internally. And as a result of that divide, um, what you've seen since our story is more, you know, kind of congressional action, more like, you know, Senators Blackburn and Blumenthal uh, are opening, a, you know, an investigation into the company. They want to see the internal research. They want to talk to uh, researchers and others who are familiar with this research just to try to understand what the company knows uh, mm -hmm. based on their internal research and how that squares or doesn't with the public statements. Well, Jeff Horowitz, it also sounds like the company has said that their internal research is proprietary and that there are important reasons that they want to keep it confidential. Is that the case? Because what you published was pretty illuminating, regardless of whether yeah. it's specific information. So they've they've talked about privacy concerns of the people that they're, you know the the teenage users they're doing research with. That feels to me entirely like a red herring in the sense that um, there's nothing deeply personal or identifying about any of the research we published. Right? There are no privacy concerns that I can see. Um, they have you know I understand the company's desire to do the research and sort of act accordingly. I think the issue comes up if there is a sense that they have reached conclusions internally and they're not being forthright with those conclusions. So, I mean, Facebook in its response to us has said, look, this stuff is preliminary, you know, um, it's still, you know, underway. There are many unanswered questions and yes, there are always unanswered questions. That said, Facebook did get to a level of comfort with its findings that its researchers were literally writing in executive presentations. We make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, right? So like, that is a, a fairly definitive conclusion. And I think that, that being their conclusion really matters and something the public should know about. We're talking with Jeff Horowitz, Georgia Wells, and Deepa Sita Raman, tech reporters for The Wall Street Journal and reporters behind the investigation, The Facebook Files, a five-part series that looks at the extent to which Facebook is aware of the harms its platform inflicts on users. We'll have more of them after the break and with you, our listeners. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For years, top officials at Facebook have been aware of the platform's adverse impacts on users, and they've disregarded some company employees who tried to push for change. That's according to Wall Street Journal reporters who uncovered a trove of internal communications on areas including teen mental health, political discourse, and human trafficking. And those reporters are Jeff Horwitz, Georgia Wells, and Deepa Sitharaman. The investigation is called The Facebook Files, a Wall Street Journal investigation. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your reactions to what you're hearing about the reporting? If you or a family member uses Facebook or Instagram, do your experiences on the platform align with what some of these reporters are talking about with regard to the impact? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook 
at KQED Forum. So, Georgia Wells, I'm struck by something that Deepa Sitharaman said earlier, just before the break, uh, talking about how when asked about the impact of Instagram on youth, that that Zuckerberg and others would present data that suggested that it wasn't as big a problem as their own internal research found. Is this something that is consistent, a consistent issue with Facebook, especially around this? Across the documents, across all the stories, there's instances of there being gaps between how Facebook understood itself internally and kind of what the researchers were finding and describing and how Facebook executives position their company publicly. But the teens, this issue around Instagram making some teens feel worse about themselves, and that's the clearest example, I think, in all the documents of there being just a gulf between how Facebook understood itself and how Facebook executives presented the company. Well, Kim writes, why not get off the app? The only way to stop this is to teach people to get off social media. Teach kids how these companies manipulate and control them. We don't need Instagram nudging our kids. Where are the parents? Jeff Horwitz, I imagine that this is something that you have heard in response to some of the findings as well that you've made about the impact that Facebook has on society and on kids, for example, on the Instagram situation. What is your response to that? So the first response is that just sort of get off Instagram is not currently something I think that teenagers would even agree is an option. Um, This is the forum for uh, social contact. I mean, it would be, you know, like asking people to stop talking to their friends on phones uh, in a previous generation. Um, You just kind of can't do it. The second thing is in terms of just sort of the, you know, why can't people just stop is... Facebook's own research shows that it's actually the users who are most at risk of negative mental health effects that have the hardest time dropping the app or limiting their usage. And it's kind of one of the reasons why the kind of nudge approach seems like it might have some an uphill battle, shall we say. Um, but I, um, you know, I think, I think, look, the question of like, what is appropriate for kids to be using and at what age um, and for how long. Uh, These are all totally fair questions. It's just the company for a long time has sort of behaved as if there's not a clear understanding of what the costs are. And, um, you know, it turns out that they do have a pretty clear sense of that. Speaking of how the company has behaved for a long time, one of the things that you've pointed out, Jeff Horwitz, is that that this is sort of a pattern among Facebook, that there are concerns about its products. It looks into them, realizes that its fixes are not desirable, and ultimately walks away from doing things or implements solutions piecemeal. What have you learned about what drives this pattern? Um, Facebook really loves its own product products. Uh, I mean, it really, really loves its own products. And I think the idea of, uh, you know, oftentimes there's this discussion of Mark Zuckerberg as being driven by greed. And that is probably not correct, actually. I I think Mark Zuckerberg is driven by a need for Facebook to be successful and to be used everywhere by everyone for as close as possible to everything. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about the research is that 
there are on a number of different fronts, some on, on the mental health for teens, but perhaps even more so in other areas, there are things Facebook could do that would make Facebook um, a, would reduce misinformation, would reduce hate speech, would reduce, uh, you know, um, a whole bunch of kind of ills that they are publicly very concerned about. But those things would come at some measure of user engagement. And I think what level of trade-off the company is willing to accept there historically has not been very high. Mm. Um, you know, that it's, if, if something is going to do even a fraction of a percent damage to user metrics, um, it's going to be, uh, or for usage master metrics, it's probably not going to happen. That is traditionally the way it's worked over there. Even if the, even if there are perhaps like double digit gains in some metric related to integrity that Facebook, you know, employees do care about. It's just, it really has to be, um, they really don't like slowing the platform down, um, slowing down its growth, slowing down the sharing. And so I think that's kind of the, the thing that seems to keep on getting in the way of a lot of the interventions that people come up with is that you have this platform that was built to be as engaging and grow as fast as possible. And if you introduce another variable, user safety or content quality in, you're inevitably going to be forcing compromises on the growth side, and they don't like that much. Deepasi Thrabad, they were willing to do something called Project Daisy, uh, as you and Georgia report on, where they were willing to reduce or, I guess, tweak or hide the likes that an image gets. What did you learn about this effort? So one of the ways that they, that Instagram researchers thought um, they could deal with the social comparison is by removing likes. You know, that can be a source of anxiety for a lot of users, not just teens. Uh, you know, when you put something out in the world, you want it to be liked and engaged with across the board. But maybe by hiding those like counts, uh, the company was thinking that could mitigate some of the downsides. And what they found is it didn't improve life at all for teenagers um, and that there weren't um, on any given well-being metric that they um, that they examined that this particular project didn't move things it didn't move the needle but they rolled it out anyway and they rolled it out anyway because uh, they viewed it as a PR win they thought that it would make them look good and I think that, you know, that that's the one thing that the company has done. I mean, they do, just to, to Jeff's point, they do a tremendous amount of research. These researchers are constantly coming up with ideas or things to try internally. Sometimes some of their, um, some of their uh, initiatives, sometimes some of their ideas are taken on board, but largely there's this feeling internally that if it's an integrity suggestion, there's a higher bar for um, it, there's just a higher bar that they have to hit versus all the other teams. And you know, when it came to some of the other interventions that could have been more, um, more effective, like the ones Georgia pointed out about hiding celebrity content and replacing that with more close friend content, they didn't really, they didn't really experiment with that. That wasn't, it was almost a non-starter because a lot of people come there for the celebrity content in the first place. And would you say, Georgia, that this tweak of likes wouldn't impact their user engagement? They didn't see it having a downside on user engagement, and that was also why it was appealing? Just to follow up on what Jeff was talking about in terms of how important that is to the company. 
they looked at user engagement when they were experimenting with this, what they described as Project DAISY? At times, there were small effects on user engagement from what we can tell. And ultimately, Facebook decided to roll this out as an optional change for users. That it gave users the option to hide the likes rather than as a, um, what's the word, you know, rather than as like a decision, a product tweak to make to all users. Yeah. So here's an example where we actually see a tiny bit of a kind of give and take, and they went with a um, kind of watered down version of what some of the suggestions were for what the change could have looked like. We don't know exactly why they decided to go with it, but knowing how prominent this engagement metric kind of plays within this company, as Deepa and Jeff has, have described, it's um, you can start to kind of put pieces together. I, I, I would I would say that I don't really have any doubt that if they had been able to, if hiding likes had somehow been the thing that cut the problem in half, that resulted in body image issues tanking and in people not tracing back in some thoughts, or in some cases, thoughts of self-harm directly to the platform, they would have done that, right? These, these folks are, they don't want to have a product that is harmful. The problem is that the changes they did, and, and, and to be fair to Instagram, they did announce that, you know, hiding likes turned out to not be that significant, right? So they weren't trying to say we've solved the problem. Um, they were you know, they basically said, here's a thing, we tried it, didn't work that hot, but some people like it, you know, seems like a valuable addition, so have at it. I think the question that is sort of more pertinent in this instance, because, I, you know, I think in other areas, there are sort of trade-offs where they could make and they really could see real gains. In this area on the team mental health, they don't have anything that qualifies as that. There isn't a lever they can think of you know, that they've come up with that can pull. And it sounds like, honestly, that they don't really even expect there will be one. And so then the question becomes, okay, if this is what the product is and some of its problems are at its core and per Instagram's own research, Instagram has some uniquely harmful traits um, compared to Snapchat and TikTok and other social media platforms in terms of a focus on the body and competition. Um, but if this is the product, then what do we do about it? And, you know, the answer certainly wasn't go fuck forth and tell the world about what our research says. Um, and it also damn sure wasn't let's shut it down. Hmm. So, um, you know, the question then is like, what can they do that they are willing to do? Um, and short of a wholesale overhaul of the product. And I think that's something that, you know, as Adam Masseri told us, um, it's, Social media is kind of part of life now. And uh, I mean, he's likened it to cars um, in, in subsequent interviews, you know, which is that, uh, yes, there might be some very detrimental effects for some people, but net it's a positive. I mean, I can kind of the message is sort of like, look, we'll do the best we can, but you all should just accept that this is the way the world is now. Well, I should mention that we invited Facebook to join the show, but they declined and directed us to a statement by Nick Clegg, the vice president of global affairs, which pushed back quite a bit on your reporting, saying that uh, the stories have contained deliberate mischaracterizations of what we were trying to do and conferred egregiously false motives to Facebook's leadership and employees. In particular, 
Nick Clegg writes that Facebook conducts research and then systematically and willfully ignores it if the findings are inconvenient for the company. This impugns the motives and hard work of thousands of researchers, policy experts, and engineers at Facebook who strive to improve the quality of our products and to understand their wider positive and negative impact. Its claim, which could only be made, it's a claim which could only be made by cherry-picking selective quotes from individual pieces of leaked material. I just want to give you quickly a chance, Jeff Horowitz, as the lead reporter on this five-part series, a chance to respond. Yeah. I mean, look, as a reporter, sometimes you know you get a document, you wonder about the motive of the person who's come to you with it, and you wonder if it tells the whole story. I can't say we've got every piece of relevant Facebook research, I can say we've got enough to see a multi-year trajectory of them recognizing grave problems that in some instances are life-threatening to users around the world and not addressing them in the way that their own researchers see fit. Um, That in response to that statement from Nick Clegg, actually a whole bunch of former Facebook integrity staffers kind of took to Twitter and uh, really kind of lambasted his approach. I mean, I think there is, as I mentioned earlier on, um, we wouldn't be seeing these documents ever if there was a sense that the company was handling them responsibly and in keeping with its with its sort of obligations to its users and the public. Um, and so I, I think the idea that um, the researchers somehow, you know, that we're impugning their, their motives or, or that they're in work, absolutely not. I mean, these people basically are Facebook's they are the conscience of the company internally, and um, they seem to have been gotten overridden repeatedly on this stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I understand the need to say something and obviously, you know, accepting, I think, some of the conclusions from our reporting is something that, at least publicly, I can understand why the company wouldn't be inclined to do. But, you know, I guess I'd say, you know, the the many errors that were alleged in the in the headline of that, certainly Facebook hasn't come to us with them. Well, let me invite anyone, if you've worked for Facebook or work for them and have some thoughts about the Wall Street Journal's findings, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Join the conversation by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, or posting your thoughts on our Facebook page at KQED Forum or on Twitter. You can also give us your reactions to what you're hearing about the Wall Street Journal's reporting generally. And uh, Dorothy in Los Angeles. Hi, Dorothy. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, So I have a question. Um, I have a daughter that's 16, and I have a son that's 21, and so I'm well aware of Instagram and have been watching it for years with growing concerns. So I've been thinking, um, I'm a professor, so I also understand a bit about, um, you know, this age group of kids. So I've been wondering, is there a way that we can stop this? And the only way I could really think of it was, our school system. So it, through our public school systems, what I have noticed is through any activities, any athletics, the kids all have to access information through an Instagram site. The teachers have started requiring students to become part of Instagram groups as part of the class. The teachers allow the students to use their phones in class. So these kids often are just on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever they want to be. So. My question would be, is there a way for any organization, such as our public schools, which get state and possibly federal funding, for us to say, no longer, you cannot have students connecting into these social networking sites? 
Well, I think there probably is a way, just if you want to think about the responsibility of the user. Georgia Wells, I'm curious if Facebook would say, schools, hey, you know, based on our internal research, this might be something you'd consider. Is what you've learned about the company something that makes this something they'd likely to they'd be likely to do? Mm-hmm. Um, what I do know is there's a woman named Larissa May, and she has a organization that popped up after her own experience with becoming addicted to Instagram. And she's working on a curriculum to bring to school districts around how teens and how young students can interact in a healthy way with social media, including Instagram. And one of the points she's made is that students don't like, they don't have any education. There's no sex ed or there's no nutritional education around how to use social media in a healthy way. And often one thing that comes out in the documents is when young people want help on these issues, often many of the adults they turn to, even if the adults use Instagram, they didn't grow up, they didn't experience what it's like to be a teen juggling all of the stressors that go into being a teenager and also have to figure out how to navigate Instagram and other social media. So I think this education is a really important component. But one thing we didn't want to lose sight of during our reporting was the idea that there are teens out there who Maybe they don't have that many supportive adults in their lives, or if they're not in a school district that has these sorts of offerings, there are teens out there who aren't going to have this sort of support. And so what is their experience on Instagram going to be? And if Instagram or Facebook, you know, their parent company, put all of the onus on the user to, to set up different kind of guardrails, what is that going to look like for them? And will that be effective? We'll have more with Georgia Wells, tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal, along with Jeff Horowitz and Deepa Sitharaman. After the break, we're talking about their investigation into Facebook's internal documents. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Wall Street Journal's recent five-part series called The Facebook Files and the extent to which the company is aware of the harms its platform inflicts on users, including teens who use Instagram, which Facebook owns, and fails to comprehensively address. We're talking with Jeff Horwitz, a tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Georgia Wells, and Deepa Sitharaman, also tech reporters for The Wall Street Journal. And you, our listeners, are with us. What are your reactions to The Wall Street Journal's reporting? If you or a family member use Facebook or Instagram, do your experiences on the platform align with the Wall Street Journal reporters and what they're talking about? Do you work or have you worked for Facebook or another social media company and have thoughts or context you'd like to share? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. A listener writes, it is not just teenagers. I'm a 58-year-old artist. Repeatedly, I am instructed to use Instagram as a professional tool. 
But I have found that every time I use it, I face suicidal ideation and deep depression. So I forego professional contacts in favor of peace of mind. I can only imagine the tangled and difficult feelings of teenagers. I also no longer use Facebook for similar reasons. Mark Zuckerberg has a lot to answer for. I, thought, I thank this listener for being so candid. Jeff Horwitz, I want to ask you about another article in your series, and this was related to internal research on the change Facebook made in 2018 to encourage more interactions by pri prioritizing posts from friends and deprioritizing, say, news articles or business posts in users' feeds. First, can you remind us, Jeff, what Facebook said publicly about the reason they were doing this at the time? Sure. So publicly, Facebook said it was drawing on kind of the time well spent movement, which was just on Harris, the idea that sort of basically addictive product features and dark patterns used to lure users into scrolling for hours um, were bad for their health. And that's, you know, no question about that. Um, and the company said that it was going to prioritize content from friends and family and also content that sort of was shared through friends and family and kind of very engaging uh, so as to avoid passive scrolling. And that was kind of the public line on that. Generally, it was like it was going to be better for their well-being and healthier and go back to Facebook's roots as a social platform and, and a connected Yeah, platform. exactly. So what did their exactly. research find out about the impact of that algorithm change? Their well, own researchers. So, yes. so, so first, just to note, the, the actual rationale for it was perhaps some of that, what they said publicly, but it was also because they had a problem uh, and it was a business problem. Content production was falling and people were commenting less. And that was a thing that they really needed to combat because a user-generated social uh, content, social platform, um, you know, kind of relies on that stuff. So this was to some degree an effort to sort of figure out how to kind of goose people into engaging more with the content on the platform. And what they found, uh, to answer your question, is that the way that Facebook was getting people to engage more, which it succeeded at, was tended to basically prioritize incendiary hostile content. And so it was something that literally was making conversations angrier worldwide. Was it also amplifying disinformation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So this was this there there were basically they found that by really rewarding things that did well with engage on engagement. So, you know, shares, emojis, uh, comments in particular, by rewarding that stuff, they were rewarding things that were very reliably got people to sort of pound their keyboard. And mm -hmm. that was um that did you know, disinformation did great, um, as did violence and incitement, as did hate speech. Basically, these were the things that were kind of really taking off. And they noted that not just was it rewarding bad content um, more often, but that publishers and even political parties were changing their approach to try to maximize how much attention they could get on Facebook by being more adversarial, more hostile more sensationalistic. So they were actually realizing that they were also influencing, say, politicians or businesses or external news sources or yeah. quote news sources, <laughs> if yeah, I can I mean, put quotes fact, around some media sources, to actually make things sound, make things more incendiary or sensationalized. 
Yeah, and I think this is an important point about just how people use the platform. Um, you know, you, me, all my colleagues here, we all probably use social media mostly because we're to share things personally, right? And what we share isn't going to depend on an algorithm change. That said, for a political party or a publisher, um, you live or buy, die by these things. And the thing that we found um, was that uh, publish, publishers and political parties literally told Facebook, we understand what you did and we are optimizing for it. And in the case of some Polish political parties, they literally told Facebook that not only were they shifting from 50-50 positive negative to 80 negative, 20 positive, they were also actually changing their platforms to be more adversarial um, and more sort of incendiary. And so I think this is like kind of a really good example about how the powers Facebook has, we've spent the last few years talking about you know, should Donald Trump's post come up or stay down? That is in some ways the most obvious, but perhaps the least important type of decision they make. The way they design the platform and what content it ends up favoring and what systems they use to distribute it, that's the stuff that matters much more than, you know, whether any particular piece of content is up or comes down. Um, and I think that's something that I'd love if the sort of public conversation of this stuff reflects a little more afterward, which is that the most important Facebook, the most important choices Facebook makes aren't, you know, on any user's account, their platform design. So once it realized it was having this effect, right, there were recommendations for ways to not boost or goose um, articles, content that got a lot of shares, because that was not a great predictor of quality of what people were seeing. What was the leadership's reaction to these recommendations? Um, I, I think Facebook is very metrics based, like literally everything that happens, even if it's like changing the size of the comment box by two pixels is going to be, ex you know, extensively tested on potentially hundreds of thousands of users. And they have for almost all of their history, really focused very hard on boosting usage and engagement. Um, and, you know, whether in, in the early days, it was just primitive, like what gets the most likes and it's simps gotten a lot more complicated and there are many factors and all that. But point is growth and usage factors. This is what the company does um, and has always done. And so being told that the way they were maximizing that was harmful the first question was like basically well you know define harmful right who are you to say in terms of their known internal research and then when the researchers came up with metrics saying no really like this is this is bad stuff and there are a, you know as close as an objective measure of bad can re can be is possible it's definitely bad stuff the company slow walked a lot of it they didn't really, and this goes up to the highest levels, they were, I think, skeptical of anything that was going to be producing a nicer Facebook at the expense of usage. Well, Linda writes, how do these reports or findings differ from blaming fashion magazines in the 90s and 2000s about unrealistic body image? As a girl growing up in those years and being a woman of color and not the size of those in the magazines, I felt bad also when I was younger. But that just pushed me to develop other things in my life. We need to stop finger pointing. Georgia Wells, what, what obligation 
do you feel like a company like Facebook or Instagram, what obligation does it have to the public good? Like, what is its duty to the public good? Because I think this and some other comments that we've gotten about, you know, individual responsibility are are, are asking this question. The point that a lot of these issues existed before Facebook is a really fair one. Like, absolutely. Um, people experience negative social comparison. Like, as a child of the 90s, I remember the um, kind of concerns around fashion magazines at the time. Um, but one of the things that's come through when I've, I've spoken to many, many teens, as well as many, many teen parents, and they're also um, filling, you know, I've gotten so many messages from them since this all began in my email inbox. And one of the things that comes out, kind of a through line throughout all of these messages and conversations is um, the sense of broken trust that parents trusted Facebook, trusted, you know, their, their teens to use this company's product. And I, I think many of them had this expectation that had the company found harm, that it would have alerted them, that it would have said something. We've been talking internally, just amongst us reporters recently about like, many companies do research into their products and sometimes companies find unfortunate outcomes and unfortunate, you know, find something maybe they wish they hadn't found or their product is defective in certain ways. And companies aren't always required to share that finding with the rest of the world. Some of the parents I'm talking to seem to draw a line at things that affect the health, the mental health of their children. But I think it's a really important question and I don't think it's a question that kind of just as a world as a kind of people who use social media apps, I don't think it's something that people have completely thought through or decided what the role of companies in these instances should be. I think it's really interesting. To add, to add one point. Yeah, go right ahead. Question, um, I think, look, like the magazine thing is absolutely fair. I think something that is different is that these are engagement-based systems and they do involve, they learn from what you engage with and they feed back on it. So for example, um, if let's say the caller had focused a picture, you know, had been really sort of fixated on skinny white girls um, as, you know, a different body type that perhaps like she wanted, you know, obviously unattainable, like for that. If she'd been focused on that, and then it had shown her more and more and more of it, right? Magazines don't do that. And I think something that Instagram can say is that they have, you know, there are sort of different body types and obviously skin colors that are, it's no longer kind of as central as kind of like white, skinny uh, in the way that it used to be. And that's good. That said, the issue that we have is that Facebook is actually recommending things and kind of pushing things that might be high engagement, but bad for you in a way that I think, you know, magazines can't quite do. There was okay. an, can I just mm -hmm. hop there was an interesting example from one of the teens I spoke to who described recently wanting to work out more. And she searched on Instagram for exercise tips or like video. She wanted to see exercises of videos, if I recall correctly. And she searched and she got some results like that. But then when she returns to the Explorer page, as it's called, it was filled with kind of uh, eat this, not that type images and images of the perfect body type and how to get it and different dieting tips. 
And she said now when she returns, she's just pounded with this. And so that was that was a departure from the experience that teens had with magazines years ago. Well, Kelly writes, I'm a middle school teacher. We're using curriculum from common sense media that focuses on digital citizenship. For my grade level, there are six lessons focusing on digital footprints, trusting information posted on social media, and dealing with friendships regarding social media. And Jillian writes, it seems ridiculous for Facebook to claim that these reporters are skewing things. Facebook has been caught out so many times for knowing about the problems they were causing and doing nothing until they were caught. I'm a grown-up, and I stopped using Facebook a long time ago because of all of this. We're talking about the Wall Street Journal's five-part series called The Facebook Files, about the extent to which the company is aware of the harms it platform, its platform inflicts on users. And you've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We have Jeff Horowitz with us, Georgia Wells, and Deepa Sitharaman of the Wall Street Journal. And Jeff Horowitz, I'm struck by something I heard you say, um, or perhaps you wrote in an interview. But you basically said, even if you aren't on Facebook ever, you're still living in Facebook's world. And I was struck by that because, I mean, I, I don't know if I would necessarily go that far, but I can understand where that comes from when you try to map, wrap your mind around the reach, the global reach now that a company like Facebook has. Yeah, and I think, look, I mean, this was a product that was designed by college students with, you know, at elite universities for other college students at elite universities. And it has become at this point a central form of communication and of commerce and, um, and in, in many different cultural contexts than uh, originally envisioned, right? And I think that something that the company has traditionally not done a ton of is think about whether or not the product is appropriate for everyone everywhere at all times in its current form. And so for the, you know, for teen users, for example, just sort of, well, what features are good for people who are still in formative years? Um, what features are good uh, overseas, for example, in a place like Myanmar, uh, where Facebook has been linked and in fact has acknowledged some culpability for spreading hate that was uh, involved in a genocide. Um, so what sort of, what are the features and, and usages there that are appropriate as opposed to like the approach that the company has traditionally take, which, taken, which is we're gonna build something and if there's a problem, we'll try to clean it up later. But also the fact of the matter is, is that it plays a powerful role. We, we started to see that in terms of influencing the spread of misinformation, impacting elections to some degree, closing a major vaccination site in Los Angeles, something that was directly linked to a Facebook group. So I think also that was something that your comment made me think about. It's just that whether how active you are or not, you do have to live to some degree with the kinds of influences this this platform has. And so how does that change its responsibility to others? Deepasit Raman, I was struck earlier by you were describing some of the impacts that your reporting has had already um, in terms of calls for more congressional investigation and so on. I was struck by something in Facebook's um, 
Vice President of Global Affairs, Nick Clegg's blog post, where Nick writes, what would be really worrisome is if Facebook didn't do this sort of research in the first place. The reason we do it is to hold up a mirror to ourselves and ask the difficult questions about how people interact at scale with social media. Deepa, are you hearing anything about their efforts to not do so much of this internal research so that it doesn't get leaked or maybe making it a lot harder for you to access these uh, internal documents in the first place? I think well, one thing we've we've heard and reported um, as of last week is that there is some discussion about tightening documents internally, but or access to these documents internally. Right now, Facebook has this extremely open system, and just to be clear, I think Nick has a point. I mean, they deserve credit for doing this kind of research in the first place too, right? Uh, so, it, it, but they've had typically a really open system. Uh, internally where any employee could look at a lot of at most research within the company and you know kind of explore and and see what their colleagues are working on you know there are limits there are parameters and I think in some cases access is restricted but in a lot of in a lot of cases you as an employee can sort of see this research and that's that's to the benefit of the you know theoretically to the benefit of the overall company but um, I guess what you know, you're you're seeing now is that there there's more um, as the company has gotten into more and more controversy, and specifically as you know, integrity people at the company and and others who feel like the company isn't living up to the promise of you know looking in the mirror and really taking stock of all the different issues, they they feel unheard, and you know that has been a growing source of tension. Deepa Sitharaman, Georgia Wells, Jeff Horowitz, thank you for your reporting. The Facebook Files, a Wall Street Journal investigation. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.